Welcome, friends. Today, I want to introduce you to my friend Raphael. If you are ready to hear a true quest story, other than mine, which that's all I mostly talk about on this podcast, get ready. Raphael is one of those courageous humans that doesn't settle with the status quo. When life around him changes, he changes with it. When life around him stays the same, he seeks out change. Raphael is not afraid of discomfort. And in this wonderful conversation, which took place on a warm Sunday afternoon here in Oakland, you will discover what others do to challenge themselves. There was a lot of learning for me in this conversation as well. We both share a love for the spoken word, but Raphael really works hard on developing the skill, both through Toastmasters, and that's where we met, and by taking improv classes. He talks about how especially the improv practice has enriched his day-to-day interactions with others. This conversation was invigorating because it made me reconsider some of my approaches. It was fun, enriched by his cats that were roaming around as we were talking, and some of the topics that we talked about. It was touching, because Raphael was not afraid to open up and share personal, very personal information. And I hope you not only enjoy this conversation, which I know you will, but you also take something away that you can apply in your life. And if anything, I would like for you to think about authenticity. That is the word that came to my mind as I re-listened to my conversation with Raphael. The quest for authenticity is really a quest for our true potential. What are we capable of achieving if we only set our eyes on a target? How far can we go if we are willing to be okay with some risk and discomfort? How much harmony can we establish within ourselves if we only search a little bit? Allow yourself to be challenged into some discomfort by my friend Raphael. Until next time, much love. All right. Hi, Raphael. Hi, Janine. <laughs> Thank you for opening your house to me on a beautiful Sunday morning here in Oakland and the great coffee you made me. Thank you. And I want to start out with your mom. We met at Toastmasters, and I've heard many of your speeches. And the one that resonated probably most with me, because I still remember it, is when you talked about your mom. Tell me a little bit about your mom and the impact she had on your life. Hmm. So for me, my mom was just my mom for most of my youth. I think when I finally started to appreciate my mom more fully was when I was in my 30s and I did a bit of you know, personal development work and I came home after doing a, an intensive weekend and visited my parents and I came up to their bedroom where they have the TV and my mother was watching a TV show about you know, something from the BBC about children in London who were evacuated to the countryside during the Blitz in World War II and the penny dropped for me. And I realized that my mother is a refugee from Vienna who was sent to England during the war on the kinder transport, that that was the seminal event in her life. 
that at age 10 to be sent away by her parents to a strange land where she didn't know the language, that she was still that little girl inside. And that that four years that she spent in England were really the core formative event of her life. So as her son growing up, I'd never seen that. I'd heard many, many stories of her life in England during the war, but it was just mom going on about her life in England during the war. And so to see her watching this show about evacuees, it all came together in that moment, crystallized. So years later, on the 75th anniversary of the Kinder Transport, I guess it was 2013, I accompanied my mom to England. We stayed in London together. We were actually on our way to Israel, where my niece lives, and uh, my mother's first great-grandchild was about to be born. So we had a few days to stop in London along the way. We shared a hotel room. We ran around London together. She's She was in her late 80s at the time, so we didn't exactly run around London, but all of a sudden the tables were turned, and instead of me as a child trying to keep up with her brisk pace of walking, now I was having to slow down so that she could keep up with me. It was really a joy to be on that trip with her, because not only could I see the little girl in her who had spent the war in England, I could also experience her reliving those moments as we traveled around London, and then we took the train down to Brighton to visit the uh, brother from her foster family. So he was now, at that time, 90 or 91. He picked us up at the train station and drove us to a nice place for lunch. And we're in these little narrow, windy country roads in England, and he's driving like a maniac. And I was just so terrified sitting in the back seat that this was going to be the end of all of us. Uh, And when we got to lunch, my mother excused herself to use the ladies' room, and I got talking with David and found out his story, which was that at the end of the war, he joined the RAF and was training to be a pilot. Uh, He was only just old enough to, to join at that time, And he loved flying, and he was just so excited about becoming a pilot. And news came from, uh, I guess it was Sicily, that his older brother, who was an RAF pilot, had been shot down and lost. And it was the big tragedy for that family, and David was fully intending to follow in his brother's footsteps and become a fighter pilot. Uh, But their father came to the... Royal Air Force and said, I am not losing my other son. I need someone to run the family business. His father managed to get him pulled out of flight school. Wow. So now this 90-year-old driving us through the narrow country lanes of (laughs) southern England uh, was the former would-be fighter pilot piloting his craft (laughs) (laughs) precisely through these narrow hedge-lined lanes. <laughs> Making and, up in different ways. <laughs> and I, I was completely secure in the backseat of that car now. I, was, I knew I was in safe hands oh. when he drove us around. But getting back to my mother, those little experiences helped me relive her past on that trip. And what I realized who she was for me was a trooper, that she had managed to pick up some of that British pluck and survive the war years as a 
early teen, and then at the age of 15, crossed the Atlantic in a convoy to get to America. Uh, Her parents had left Vienna. They'd crossed Russia and Japanese-occupied Korea to get to the port of Busan in 1940. They took a Japanese freighter to San Francisco. I have a wonderful picture of them when uh, they arrived on the freighter. They were quarantined on Angel Island, uh, which was the quarantine site on the West Coast for people coming into the country. I didn't know that for refugees. And then they made a life for themselves, first in Stockton and then in San Francisco. And at a certain point, once they were settled, had work, they sent for my mother and her brother to come over from England. So the wonderful thing about my mother is that since the passing of my dad, uh, she's become more and more outspoken in her memories and her stories. And I've heard some wonderful stories about her trip across the Atlantic as a 15-year-old who was supposed to be attached to some other family, but they didn't really want to be responsible for a 15-year-old girl, and she was perfectly happy to make her way around the ship. She just had a very adventurous time Mm -hmm. and then uh, took the train from New York to the Bay Area to California and was reunited with her parents in San Francisco uh, in 1943. To me, that's uh, an amazing story of survival, of grit, and at an age when we don't really apply words like grit to teenagers. Mm-hmm. So before you saw her watching that show, you didn't really know this journey that she had taken? Or I, it, hadn't, it hadn't clicked with you? It hadn't clicked as a life experience mm. and as a formative experience. Instead, because my mother can have a sort of everything turned out fine way of telling stories. There was never any doubt in my mind growing up that, oh, of course she survived. Mm -hmm. Of course everything turned out. Of course I have all my grandparents. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as I grew older and studied history and gathered the enormity of what one side of my family had been through and more distant relatives on my other side, I just never had pictured her as a girl. As, as my mother, I'd just always seen her as the grown-up woman mm-hmm. that I'd known, you know, from the time I was born. And she probably, the way she told her stories was always like, yeah, it's just another story. It hadn't maybe clicked with you what it actually meant. Yes. She was in charge of taking care of a, a little girl in the family that she was part of in England. And she would tell stories about taking her to the beach each morning in Brighton. And there would be... I forget what they're called, the big metal things that they put on the beach in England during the war to prevent landing craft from landing on the beaches. So they they look like ginormous jacks. So these big uh, steel beams or iron beams, Uh odd shapes and barbed wire and so forth. So they were playing on a beach that was prepared for war. And that was just sort of the backdrop of her stories and it wasn't the central point of her stories now of course her her voice would drop to a whisper when she talked about family members who had been lost in the holocaust who didn't make it out we also had a fake fur blanket that i took a liking to when i was little because there was something about it not being real fur but it was fur like 
we just called it Hansi's blanket. Hansi was a cousin of my mother's who didn't make it out. So that was perhaps why I didn't ask my mother a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. I think I sensed intuitively that those were subjects that she didn't want to be asked about. Mm -hmm. So for me, the realization in my 30s of how central that whole period of her life was to her became clear just by putting the puzzle pieces together and by recognizing that there are places I had not been willing to go as a child growing up, that children are known for asking why, why, why. Mm -hmm. And maybe I was either less inquisitive or I just read some indications that maybe I shouldn't ask why. So I assume this then changed other things for you. Maybe you became more inquisitive with your mom. Maybe you... It changed your perspective, your relationship with her. How did it affect you and change you in other ways and how you looked at life or approached life? Uh, one thing I left out of the story is that at the time that I went to London with my mother and met David again and so forth, uh, my daughter was in her early teens. And so it was very easy for me to transpose my mother back to that age because I had my own daughter who was around that age at that point. So there was an experience of merging two lives, in a sense, my daughter's teenage life and reverse engineering my mother's life to that age as well. Uh, the other thing that it changed was it removed the dynamic between me and my mother of you know, seeing her as the mom who needs me to do things or is telling me what I should do with my life. All those things pretty much receded in importance because I could see her for who she was outside of being my mother. Mm -hmm. So her being my mother became in some ways a secondary attribute. And in preparing speeches about her at Toastmasters, there was a freedom in telling her story that I could introduce her as her own person and less as my mom. Mm -hmm. So that was a real pleasure in bringing her to our open house as well and having you meet her and knowing that you were meeting her not just as my mom, but someone whose life you knew a little something mm -hmm. about. I remember your speech when you talked, when I met her. Mm. So, so she's, she's still alive, right? She's 91. Wow. And going strong. Yeah. One, one other thing I would add is there's something about her experience living in England uh, and her personality and her perspective on life that she will sometimes pronounce a comment on something, a judgment or an assessment. And I wish I had an example to pull out of my hat, but it sounds a bit like Lady Grantham, uh, Violet in Downton Abbey, played by uh, Maggie Smith. So for my daughter, it's been wonderful for her to appreciate her grandmother as this rather outspoken person who makes these tart comments about things. And <laughs> so there's another appreciation of my mother that I get through my daughter's eyes of mm -hmm. what, how my mother shows up as a grandmother. Mm -hmm. 
And your daughter is in college now. She's in college, yes, in her freshman year. And I remember that was a big change for you too. I think her first move out of the house was a trip to Australia. Yes, so she took a gap year and traveled on her own for about six months. That so was she, hard. For yeah, you, I remember. she broke us in on you know <laughs> with the empty nest thing. I realized that it was less about my not being able to rush to her rescue if anything went wrong. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was a concern. Uh, the hardest part emotionally was recognizing that a period of my life was coming to an end mm. and that being in the family unit at home was a chapter that was closing. That's been something that I've had a lot of time to work through and first with her travels and now with her being away at school. So it's another perspective shift. So like seeing my mother as her own person and not just my mother. With my daughter moving out, I get to see her as her own person and not simply as my daughter. The speech that I prepared on this for Toastmasters, in fact, uh, is called Dispatches from an Empty Nest. And the concluding thought is that now I see that I no longer, or she no longer belongs to me, I belong to her. Hmm. Wow. You know, I have a question here, why Toastmasters? But I think maybe I want to put a little bit of a different question out there. Is Toastmasters, among other things, I'm sure, but is Toastmasters also a way for you to sit down when you write your speeches to help you reflect on your life, to formulate it and put it into words and then speak about it? Is it kind of a little bit an outlet in a way? Toastmasters is very much an outlet. I enjoy the spoken word very much. I found writing in school very challenging. I could write well, but it was a lot of work. And it was a kind of work that I struggled at. Speaking, on the other hand, is in the moment. And it's often a good idea to prepare in some way for what you're going to say but there's an act of creation in the moment as well as the act of creation in preparing a speech mm-hmm. so with preparing speeches for toastmasters there was a perfect structure or scaffolding for defining what you were going to say and shaping it and deciding where to start deciding where to finish and what key points needed to be in there. So from an analytic and structural perspective, it was a nice puzzle to solve. And then in delivering it, there was the challenge of remembering what scaffolding you'd built. (laughs) (laughs) So that's been the pleasure of preparing speeches. The part that I really love about it, and I think this is where the sweet spot is for me with Toastmasters is that speech making for me is is art. And I mean it both in the preparation and the delivery. But in the delivery, you get that delicious tension of the moment, like watching any piece of theater. There's dramatic pauses. There's the moment where emotion enters the speech. 
even now talking with you, especially about my mother, there's you know been plenty of opportunities for emotion to catch in my throat. And I think that's why is the human creatures that we are, mm-hmm. speech is so essential mm-hmm. that it conveys so much more than the words that we're saying. It's the delivery. It's the pace. It's the intonation. It's that catch in the throat. It's that laugh that explodes into the middle of a sentence unintended. And those things are not things that you can really script into a speech very well. It's going to be artificial or fake if you do. I love listening to really well-delivered speeches, and I sometimes wonder how close they are to the prepared speech and how much the person has ad-libbed or improvised. I've been daunted by the idea of having to give a political speech because the stakes are so high when it comes to saying exactly what you need to say. I much prefer Toastmasters where the speeches are about really speaking from the heart and uh, hopefully not having any political ramifications (laughs) from what you say. (laughs) But here's the thing. So I want to say so many things. When I hear your speeches, they seem so well prepared, rehearsed, thought through that I'm very surprised by what you say right now. The spontaneity that you're referring to your speeches come across so clean that i thought you're standing at home you're rehearsing them and it's all well laid out yeah i have very rarely rehearsed my speeches and when i have they fall really flat because i'm in rehearsal mode what i've learned about myself and this might not work for everyone is that i need to write an outline and be willing to walk away from it when i step up to the front of the room to start speaking. Now that doesn't mean that I completely throw it away, but it also means that I can't shackle myself to the outline and have a printed copy of it on the desk or podium in front of me, Mm -hmm. because that again kills the energy of the speech. Really what needs to be there is a clear mind map of here's where I'm starting, here's where I'm going, here are the illustrations, and here's where I'm going to finish. And as long as I get those things prepared, then I have a speech. There have been times where, you know, our meetings are at seven in the morning, and it's the night before, and I know what I'm going to talk about, but I haven't created that outline yet. So from perhaps 1130 until one in the morning, I will sketch out the outline, tweak it a few times, write out a few sentences that really capture what I want to say, study that again when I wake up in the morning around 5.30, and then give my speech at 7. Some of those speeches have really rocked. (laughs) And and very few of them haven't. So for me, it's the dynamic of guiding my mind beforehand, preparing it. And it may sound really undisciplined to do it this way, but this is, in fact, a discipline for me that having that outline in my head means that I am making these points in this way on this topic for this purpose. So as long as I'm not deviating from that, then I've got that coherent speech that people think I've rehearsed and prepared and polished (laughs) over time. Wow, I love that. 
I love, I, I, this is a completely different approach, but it also makes me question now because I write everything out word by word. And to me, speech giving is more of a rehearsal process. So I rehearse, but I totally see what you're saying. Me rehearsing it doesn't give any room for deviations and doesn't make it an art. It's just another rehearsal thing. It's still an art, but it's a different kind of art. It's it's oratory. I'm glad you didn't go to HPS. You wouldn't have liked it. I would not have liked it. I <laughs> Did you know that? I surmised that from going to your presentation and um. where you were getting prompts when you got stuck mm. of what the next line was. Yep. And I realized, you know, I could give speeches like that and I remember memorizing things for school and doing memorization really well and it's probably worth my trying it and seeing how that would work for me as an actor or as a speech giver but what I've found lights me up about speaking publicly is to be in that moment just be free and be natural when I'm scripted, I get very boring, <laughs> very wooden, very monotone. I think what you're doing is much harder. It, it probably is. It's much harder. And it, to me, I'm very interested right now because everybody can rehearse. And it's not to say that the rehearsal process is has to be boring. A scripted speech doesn't necessarily have to be boring. You have to make it interesting, but you practice all of that. You practice where you put your tone, where you step, where you go on the stage you practice all of that but yes it can seem very rehearsed i like what you're saying because you're challenging yourself to be in the moment and to take a risk to maybe not be on script and maybe lose your point for a minute or two and have to challenge yourself to get back to it and it's all in your mind. You have that, that mind work that you do prior to it. It's not a rehearsal. It's just um, the points that you know you have to hit, even if you get off track. It's a trapeze act without the net. Kind of, yeah. Well, Let me feed the cat and then I'll come back. Please feed the cat. <laughs> what I, the first thing I learned at Toastmasters was to slow down. I got up there the first few times I spoke and gave impromptu speeches, our little two-minute two minute table topics. And I spoke so quickly because I knew I only had two minutes and I wanted to fit so much in. And my speaking was full of uhs and ums. And so I was fitting twice as many words into two minutes as I needed to and then adding all sorts of filler words because I was trying to keep the thought going and the pace going. And my mentor... Uh, told me afterwards, well, first of all, the grammarian, the person who counts your filler words, reported that I had the most of anyone that morning, something like 12 or 17, <laughs> and I was crestfallen. I It just brought back trauma from first grade when I spoke at show and tell, and the teacher stopped every, stopped me in mid-sentence and asked everyone to start counting my uhs and ums on their fingers. So then she asked me to continue. This is show and tell in first grade. This is not Toastmasters. 
And I was watching as all the kids in the class were putting up their fingers <laughs> with each of my uhs and ums. So you would think that someone like that would never set foot near Toastmasters, but... Not you. Not me. And after my mentor told me how many ums and uhs I had, uh, I asked her what I should do. And she said, slow down. And that slowing down has been really key to my connecting with my audience. It's been key to trusting that I know where I'm going in a speech. It's allowed me to pause if there's any uncertainty or to gather my thoughts or my emotions. And however long that pause seems to me, it's not nearly as long for the audience. That's totally on point. Those, those are the huge revelations I've gotten mm-hmm. out of Toastmasters. And they're not things that are in the manuals. Right. They're more from throwing oneself into that environment and having to give speeches over and over and over again. And that's the challenge. The thing I want to say about Toastmasters is that you were one of the first people I heard speak. There's another cat. They just kind of come out of the the woodwork. (laughs) And um, you've been a major part of my choosing this speaking journey because I was so impressed by this art of speaking, which I want to get back to what you earlier said. It is an art. And we connect as humans through speaking, but so often we don't do it well. We don't connect well because we don't know how to speak well so toastmasters you just said that has taught me many things that are not in the manual it's taught me to love how to speak and for me i can be a master at rehearsing all my school elementary school secondary all my school years i've rehearsed i've memorized things And Toastmasters, the most frightening part of Toastmasters is table topics for me because I have to stand up and impromptu speak. I would sit in the background and I would always be like, please don't call on me, please don't call on me, please don't call. Like, I would speak, I can prepare a speech any day, but please don't call on me for a one-minute impromptu speech. But I'm slowly getting to love it. The challenge in having to stand up and say something you're not prepared to say. And this is completely different. That's something you excel at, and this is something I need to work on. Mm. This is my growth opportunity. So consider that the barrier for you is over there with you. My experience of hearing you speak was that when you gave prepared speeches, you were very rehearsed, Mm -hmm. and you had a very sort of speechifying way Mm -hmm. of speaking. But when you came up for table topics and were impromptu, I felt like I was getting the real Janine. So there was a naturalness to your speaking. Your manner was just completely different. And it's not something unique to you, but it's something I keep in mind for myself. Because if I'm trying too hard to follow my outline, it's not a matter of whether to follow the outline or not. But if I'm thinking about it too much, my attention is there then I'm taking attention away from my audience and I'm not present for them in the same way. Mm. So the going back to my talking about that scaffolding, I have to be a nimble monkey on that scaffolding and know the scaffolding like the back of my hand, like any monkey in a zoo would know, you know the climbing tree that it's on. Mm. 
but not stop and contemplate the scaffolding. <laughs> and I know that's a strange way to put it, but yes, I, I love the impromptu speaking opportunities because there's, there's no one that's going to come and tell me that I didn't prepare enough. <laughs> it's the ultimate freedom. And if you crash and burn, uh, you didn't have anything that you brought with you that should have, you know, carried you across the chasm that you're leaping mm-hmm. across. So it's, it, I think the, the other thing that I did when I joined Toastmasters around the same time was I took my first improv theater courses. Mm-hmm. And they're very different cultures. And the improv culture is one of making failure acceptable and celebrating failure. In that environment of celebrating failure, the audience in an improv performance actually enjoys when the person screws up, when the person on stage screws up, because mm-hmm. that's the drama of it. The person has is supposed to use certain words in their scene, and they forget one of the words, and then that struggle to remember the word becomes some of the drama. Now, none of that applies to Toastmasters. Uh, you don't want to be up there struggling to remember a word. But where it does apply is in the freedom that someone performing improv has to know that even if they don't remember the word, they can create something out of that moment of forgetting that will be memorable and fun to watch and fun to be a part of. So being up there in front of people without any preparation and speaking, it's the ultimate bungee jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's exhilarating and sometimes you won't connect, but if you relax and you bring yourself and you listen to yourself as you're speaking, you can craft something that really resonates. So why improv and Toastmasters? I was in a career that I wasn't enjoying. Uh, I'd been in it a long time and I was concerned that interviewing for a new career that I would not be able to think on my feet mm-hmm. in my interviews. So the two things that I took on when I finally got serious about leaving my old career was to uh, check out this Toastmasters thing and see what happened if I put myself in improv class. I did not think of myself as someone who would go perform on stage or give speeches, but I figured I'd be more well-spoken in my interviews and better able to quickly summon a good answer if I got a question I wasn't expecting. So those were the motives for doing those two things. I did not expect to enjoy each of those pursuits so much for their own sake. And so now I'm a member of an improv troupe. And then I was president of our Toastmasters Club for a year. And those were not things that I foresaw doing three years ago before I joined either. You're continuing with both because they both teach you a little bit different things? Yes, and they're both incredibly fun. Oh, okay. Uh, We have such a great group at our Toastmasters Club that there's the social cohesion as well. It's wonderful to be part of that community. Mm -hmm. I think... They both provide something that 
nourishes other parts of my life. Yesterday I was at a resort where you can bring food and prepare it and go to the hot springs and all that. And I didn't bring any olive oil to cook with. So I asked this other guy that was in the kitchen, hey, can I borrow some of your olive oil? Can I mooch some off of you? And he had some really aggressive kind of mocking response. Like he was saying, sure, go ahead. And I don't know if he said something about how much he'd charge me for it, or I don't remember the exact words. Using my improv training, I just immediately accepted it and came back at him with, yes, I come to this resort all the time for the abuse. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> the guy was kind of stunned. He didn't know, he wasn't expecting that response. And there was no malice in how I said it. I said it to be funny. And he just took it and kind of laughed in this nervous way after it landed with him. And I got my olive oil and we didn't have any further confrontation. <laughs> and you probably made a difference in his life in that moment. I, I, I don't know if response. I did, but, but it was, it's a, another tool in the toolkit of life. So if you're comfortable with saying something unexpected, if you're comfortable with hearing something unexpected and just taking it in and going in a new direction, there wasn't a need, it wasn't appropriate for me to call him out, say, that was really aggressive. Although I suppose I could have. Mm -hmm. uh, but improv also means that if I get on the bus and I sit near the driver and the driver happens to say something to me, how's your day going? Uh, I'll just have a conversation with him mm -hmm. because maybe I've just been put on stage and one of you is the bus driver and one of you is the passenger. Go, make a scene. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also gotten me more interested in people because everyone's got a story to tell. This happened to me on the bus in San Francisco one day where I... I think I said something like, oh, I live over in Oakland. And the bus driver said, oh, I'm from Berkeley. And, and then we had this whole conversation about what Berkeley and Oakland used to be like when we were much younger growing up. And, you know, all of a sudden we were just two human beings having a shared moment rather than a bus driver and his passenger. And it's a way of approaching life that's much more inclusive of all moments of our day rather than Oh, I'm commuting now. I'm on the bus. I don't talk to people because I'm commuting. Oh, well, I break that rule sometimes. It teaches you to be fast on your feet in terms of what to say. Sounds like it. And I, I wouldn't I, say it's about being fast. It's actually about removing the barriers that you put in place to edit everything you do and say. Mm, which we do all the time. We think, what's the proper response here? There's a whole processing unit that's working everything, all the possible outcomes. And there are people for whom that processing unit doesn't get in the way as much. Mm -hmm. And I probably have envied most of those people because I'm a very analytic person. So mm -hmm. I will sit there and processor unit, processor unit, processor unit, and then say something. And so these kinds of training, whether it's Toastmasters, whether it's improv, have been, I think, a very uh, healthy addition to my education. In improv, it's also wonderful to pause. There's a grappling with the attention of the listener, of the audience. There's a deepening in the emotion that happens. And, of course, when you go faster, it 
conveys excitement. You're getting lit up about something. What's going on? <laughs> nice demonstration. <laughs> and it has also helped you be, it sounds like, more open, spontaneous. I think in the moment. Yes. And it's a side of each of us that we show to some people, but not to others. How I got into improv was going to see a movie about improv with my family. And when we left the theater, my daughter said, Dad, I think you should do improv. I think I know what she saw now looking back. What I think she saw was that being in an improv situation, a theater, troupe, class, what have you, would bring out the side of me that I've shown at home being silly with my daughter, but that I don't really bring out with people in everyday life because I don't want to be that silly person around other grown-ups unless I have some kind of permission to do that. Really, it's been about giving myself more permission to do that. And it's been a pleasure to see how I might go into a grocery store with my daughter and we'll be in the checkout line and that improv thing will kick in in the checkout line and I'll have an interaction with the checker and it will be two people having a conversation rather than that person's checking my groceries and putting them in a bag for me. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a democratization of life that happens when you start interacting with everyone as a potential scene partner than you know, whatever roles we have in life. I love this. This is so me. I see myself. You're performing a task. You're, you're in the bus. You, you're going somewhere. You're even waiting for an appointment. You're sitting there waiting. Waiting doesn't have to be an activity. You can do something else while waiting. And I don't mean to pull out your phone mm -hmm. and kill time that way, but to open yourself up to the world around you. And I find that every time I do that, the few times that I do that, I, I learn something. I'm inspired. I walk away with, oh, this person. I don't know. I just, it expands my horizon. And it's so rewarding, but it's so easy not to do. I don't know. I don't know why. We're just always in this one lane kind of life. It's the routine lane. And this goes to comfort zone as well, that, you know, as with my daughter saying or seeing that I was one way at home and then another way outside the home, we're a certain way in our normal lives. And then we're another way when, you go, when we go traveling. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a foreign country, you might be more inclined to ask someone for directions than you are here where you live. Mm -hmm. You might be more inclined to ask someone what they do or what kind of life they have. There's a whole different set of rules that you've got for yourself uh, or you've lifted some restrictions when you're traveling mm -hmm. that are in place in your routine life. So I think it's a bit like that as well, that we, we have sides of ourselves that we reserve only for certain times and certain groups of people. And I'm not saying that it's appropriate for everyone to just go out and interact as if they're with their close friends all the time, but it's amazing what what's available when you stop living in the routine and you step out. So it's, it's very much like what you're saying. If you're waiting for the bus, what happens if you're not looking at your phone? What happens if you're not 
private with your thoughts. And typically it takes a catalyst. I don't want to be that person in the line at the bus stop who's like trying to strike up conversation. But if there's something amusing that everyone's just smiled at, then there's an opportunity. If someone has a gorgeous little child that's gurgling in the cutest way, why ignore that? Why stand on your bus stop decorum and keep, you know, a stone face? Mm-hmm. It's perfect opportunity to interact. In fact, that's one of the things I miss about when my daughter was a baby was she was very interactive with people around her and we would go into a store or something and I felt like the most popular person in the world because all these people would come up to me and and interact with my daughter and it was uh, completely gratuitous on my part uh, to enjoy that. It broke the ice in a way. And you know what this really comes down to, this whole conversation that we're having, is that you know there's introverts, there's extroverts. I count myself more as an introvert, but underneath that introvert shell is an extrovert that never fully realized itself. And so all these opportunities are there for playing at being an extrovert, letting that extrovert out, exercising the extrovert, or you know if we just dispense with the labels, connecting with other human beings, and you know. There are times when we don't want to connect. There's times when we want our privacy. Mm-hmm. But there's, we're, we're living on a crowded planet, and why not enjoy the interactions when we can? So other than improv, Toastmasters, it sounds like you like to challenge yourself personally, growth-wise, not just for challenging sakes, but I think you, you're very deliberate about what opportunities you undertake and you allow them to change you what else do you do currently that challenges you around the same time that i started these other things uh, i also joined a men's group and that was by invitation of someone i met through another course and what i didn't realize was speaking of comfort zones that i was more comfortable around women than around men that I worked in a very male-dominated environment. I had a persona that I was at work that got by with all these men I worked with. But on a more fundamental level, I wasn't comfortable with men I hadn't known for a long time as close friends. So to join a group of men who gathered once a month, uh, 80-plus members, it was really revolutionary to put myself in an environment where my internal conversation was one of whatever experiences I'd had growing up where I hadn't trusted other boys. So whether it's playground dynamics, whether it's summer camp uh, antics, whatever things are in our past, it was interesting to note where those things stay with you on a, on a deep level. So I wasn't living my grown-up life going, oh, can't trust men. They'll turn on you. They'll betray you. That wasn't my conversation about men. But to be in a men's group and to hear the stories of the other men and to realize that human experience runs the gamut. There's people who've been through so much more than I've been through. And to learn each other's stories and to gain that kind of 
connection with each other, you suddenly realize that that's everyone's experience, that everyone's been through stuff. And then that person at work that you don't trust, well, they're just that way because of some stuff that they've been through. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge leap into the unknown to join that group. It was definitely getting outside of yet another comfort zone. I think the motivation for all these quests, these journeys has really been about reaching a certain stage of life. Here I am in my 50s, but the quest really started late in my 40s where I was starting to ask the question of what's life about? Here I am about to turn 50. It seems so old. All these dreams that I had growing up, some of them I might have fulfilled, some of them I haven't. I think I just wanted to really pull back that surface layer of life and see what was deeper down. So that was part of the motivation for the challenges. I was at a point in my life where it was, what do you have to lose? Why not? Mm -hmm. And then if I'm really honest, the deepest motivation was that, you know, you got to it earlier in the conversation. My daughter was leaving home and there were just a few more years with her at home. And I was committed to getting my act together before she left home so that she knew that I was okay without her. But you could have just picked random activities. You know, when you first mentioned your daughter leaving home, to me, my thoughts went kind of like, oh, maybe I just I need something to do to fill the void. And you could have, you know, joined a racquetball team or mm-hmm. you could have picked random things, but you didn't. You picked very deliberate things that didn't just fill the time, but that challenged you. You wanted to peel back the layers on purpose. It's interesting to think back to when my wife and I first met. We traveled together. We enjoyed being in other cities around the world and just sitting in a cafe and people watching. And we prided ourselves in the fact that we enjoyed so much being students of human nature. Oh, look at that person over there. Deciding what it was, what the relationship was between those people sitting at that table. Mm -hmm. I remember a cafe in Paris where there was a group of men in their 60s or 70s gathered around a table. They probably met there regularly. And they had these, I forget what kind of radish they are, but they're the very long radishes. They're not round. And they had a box of these long cylindrical shaped radishes and they were very carefully you know cutting the leaves off and cutting the tips off and eating them and it was as if it was candy it was like the best thing that one could possibly eat (laughs) and so moments like that I think just for me it wasn't about hitting a ball and scoring points that wasn't going to be a thing that would add to my life For me, I needed to get that human experience, something about diving into human nature. So that was why it was those activities. I have other activities that, you know, excite other parts of my mind. Uh, I love playing board games. I love engaging the analytic part of my brain to the exclusion of almost everything else and figuring out how the cards I have in my hand or how the pieces on the board how I can maximize my next move, how I can score more points. So that's 
one of my other activities, but that's one that goes back to my childhood. And so that wasn't a, a big departure as a grown up. Mm-hmm. If anything, the departure as a grown up was to give myself permission to play those games mm-hmm. and not feel like I was being childish, but just enjoy them as a hobby. Is there something that you have not yet started that maybe is a dream, was a dream, something that you would like to do at some point down the road? Maybe a travel to a place, something that maybe you're thinking that's the next step for me. I don't have an exact next step. It's more right now deepening the things I am doing. In many ways, I'm doing too many things. So I'm having to figure out what to excise and cut away. Acting is calling to me. Mm. The improv experience has kind of given me a bit more of the theater bug than I ever thought I had. It also was something that, as a child, I just made some decision that, oh, it's the drama kids that do theater, and I'm not a drama kid. Being in an improv troupe is making me realize that, nope, that's that's actually available after all. So maybe that's a direction, but I think that's going to have to wait till I've made more room in my life. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm enjoying the things that fill it up. Awesome. The last thing I want to ask is that I'm curious about because you're so very deliberate and thoughtful. Is there certain rituals or practices that you have that you do every day? Something that's key to you, to your well-being, to your happiness, something maybe you start a day off or end the day with? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) I'm one of those people who doesn't have that or has rituals I'm not proud of like oh, I got to get up for work I'm going to milk this cup of coffee for as long as I can and cycle through the news now I think so I've just given up coffee in the last few days oh so you I've just al- made me one this must have been really hard no for you. <laughs> it, was, it was a pleasure to make it for you <laughs> I've given up caffeine partly to be more present and feel less tired But getting back to morning rituals, the ritual that I've had for a very long time, pretty much since my teens, has been staying current on the news. So as a teenager, I I emulated my dad by picking up his newspapers and reading them. And in college, I, um, I guess in grad school, really, when I was studying international relations, I had my clock radio set to go off in the morning to NPR and listen to the news when I woke up. And since the advent of the iPhone, I've spent my first minutes in bed reading the news in the morning. And I had a job that required that I be up on the latest events, be able to explain them to my leadership. So it had a professional purpose. Since leaving that career and with the current administration that we have now, I've decided that it's actually unhealthy to start my day consuming the news. And so I'm in transition now from that morning ritual to finding some other way of starting my day. My interest was peaked because I gave up the news years ago. Mm -hmm. I literally gave it up. I was an avid reader of The Economist. That was my news source. Always a little bit delayed, but because it's a weekly magazine... I just, I gave up. I felt like it didn't 
add any value to my life. But um, I've actually considered picking it up again. It wasn't a morning ritual. It was just something I wanted to always keep up with the news. But I do feel a little bit blind at times. So I do want to pick it up again. It's interesting that you going the other way. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't give it up completely. You would just not, it wouldn't be your first thing in the morning kind of thing to do. Exactly. It's a question right now of, am I adequately informed for my needs? And do I really need to spend half an hour on Twitter reading updates before I get out of bed? Mm-hmm. Or is my life enriched? Or is there room for other things if I remove that from my routine. So along with quitting caffeine, I deleted Twitter from my phone. Uh, And I might even start silencing some notifications from news sources. Uh, It's this, this gets into a completely different conversation of the world we're living in right now. Uh, But in terms of the news, it's also a drumbeat that it used to be that you waited for your magazine to come in the mail or you got your newspaper in the morning and it intruded only at a certain time or at a time of your choosing when you picked up the newspaper. You controlled it. And now when my phone beeps at me whenever there's a new headline uh, or even if it just flashes on the screen, there's this implicit rebuke if I don't pick up my phone and see what that headline is. So... Now I'm at the mercy of my device, and I'm uh, finally choosing to break that. I have no notifications on my phone. I don't think any. I mean, very few. Nothing news-related. So, Well, this was awesome. I, uh, yeah, I actually took notes, things that I take away from this conversation. It's really great. Well, it's been great to have this conversation. It's ranged onto topics I wasn't expecting, and it... Uh, makes me realize that you know we can spend our lives toiling away at a job or pursuing certain goals and if we do that without stopping to take stock of how we're preparing ourselves for the journey and how we enjoy the journey rather than the destination mm-hmm. then we miss out yeah. so thanks for scrutinizing the journey with me <laughs> no thank you you did it was the same for me it's- It was a great moment in time today. You're a marvelous interviewer. (laughs) I don't know about that. No, don't don't (laughs) deflect the compliment. I've really enjoyed this conversation. and I like how you're in the dance rather than having a a list of questions or something that, you know, becomes this kind of scripted exploration. Yeah, no, that's not what I want. So...